This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We've been featuring worker struggles in recent weeks, looking at the big quit, the labor shortage, and the upsurge in strikes. Signs that point to what Nelson Lichtenstein calls the churn, the big churn in labor, including unionization drives, strikes, victories, and setbacks, but with militancy increasing overall. Today, we're going to look at the Starbucks victory and the continuing Kellogg strike after workers rejected the agreement and Kellogg has said it will permanently replace the workforce. We talked to labor scholar John Logan, who has tracked unionization efforts closely, and he talked with us earlier this year on the January through the March Amazon organizing effort at Bessemer, another closely watched historic campaign. Significantly, the NLRB has ruled against Amazon's tactics that made the vote to unionize Amazon impossible, anything but free and fair. They've ordered a do-over. But today we're going to talk to John Logan about the victories and the upsets, the campaigns and strikes, and the renewed militancy with public support, beginning with the victory at Starbucks. Lauren Carey Gurley, who has been covering the Starbucks unionization drive, quoted Richard Benzinger, the lead organizer in the Starbucks campaign. And I think his quote's a great way to begin. He said, this is a stunning victory that proclaims that Gen Z is Generation Union. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. John Logan joins us, as I said. He's a PhD in U.S. labor history at UC Davis. He's an expert on the anti-union industry and the anti-union legislation in the U.S. And he explores how public policy and employer opposition have made it difficult for workers to form unions in the U.S. far more than in any other advanced developed democracy. He's also professor and chair of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. And his recent piece, um, he publishes widely on labor, appears Friday on the Starbucks victory in The Conversation. It's called Union Battles at Amazon and Starbucks Are Hot News, which can only be good for the labor movement. John, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, very glad to be here, Susie. Great. Well, let's start with Starbucks. So a group of baristas at the Elmwood Starbucks store in Buffalo, New York, voted to unionize, becoming the first of the coffee chain giants somewhere between eight and 9,000 corporate-owned stores in the country to do so. The election was a landslide victory for the union with 19 workers in voting in favor and eight voting against unionizing at the Elwood Starbucks store in Buffalo. And we're talking about Buffalo in New York. The union lost the election at the second location where workers voted 12 to 8 against unionization. A third election uh, at the Starbucks airport location has not yet been called because, and you will explain, some of the votes have been challenged and it may take, what, a month for that to be sorted out. But let's start, John, with the unionization drive in Buffalo, which this is a historic campaign that you've called a watershed victory. So can you really just state explicitly what's happened uh, before? And I just gave some of the details, but it's the I guess the first thing to ask you to explain what makes it important. And this is yeah. the first one in the U.S. So let's yeah. hear. Yeah. 
So you, you're right. This is the only unionized Starbucks in the U.S. at the moment. We had um, Union Victory in British Columbia as a Starbucks re- retail store last year. One thing that my friends at the UFCW always insisted I point out is that they did actually unionize Starbucks stores in the 1980s. In fact, they had all of them. But Starbucks was a very different animal at that time. It was only a few stores. They were all in the Seattle area. So what is now UFCW Local 21, the largest local UFCW local in the country, represented those workers. When the company went underwent its huge expansion, nationwide expansion, starting in the 1990s, as a result of a deliberate effort on the part of the company, those unions were dislodged and ultimately decertified. So this is a very historic victory. It's not the first ever unionized Starbucks in the United States, which has sometimes been reported, but, you know, it, it doesn't detract in any way from its importance. You know, it's incredibly important. And as you know, you know, most unions have actually not targeted uh, employers like Starbucks because they just think it's too difficult. You know, the stores are very small. There's very high turnover. The company's very anti-union. The company is very wealthy. You know, all of these things, you know, are just going to make it incredibly difficult. So we actually had some organizing again. I'm sure you know, people associated with the IWW would want to point out that they were involved with organizing Starbucks stores. I, um, I, I, sorry, I don't know the exact timeline. It was in the 2000s, maybe around 2004 to 2006. But it, it's very difficult. So now we had this latest drive, Workers United, an affiliate of SEIU Service Employees International Union. As you said, the, the lead organizer, Richard Bensinger, has, is an incredibly experienced and talented organizer, has worked with the UAW, was the first organizing director at the AFL-CIO many years ago, wonderful writer. Anyway, he, you know, he was there offering advice you know, for Workers United. But it was really about the, the workers themselves. And as you said, you know, overwhelmingly young workers, you know, a diverse group. But it's very important to point out that demographically, not that different from a lot of the big low-wage service sector employers that the unions would like to target right now. So if you look at Starbucks workforce, you know, not that different from Whole Foods or from McDonald's or from Amazon. But so just to back up, and I'll be very quick about this, you know, most people probably know, but the, the problem in the United States is it's incredibly, incredibly difficult today to organize in the private sector because of two things, the weak legal protection for the right to choose a union and very strong opposition, employer opposition to unionization. And what those two things combined mean is that when you have a huge, powerful, rich anti-union corporation, such as Starbucks, such as Amazon, if you have an employer like that who has the resources, you know, clearly they have like the resources in space, and who has the stomach for the fight, which again, these kinds of employers, Starbucks, Amazon, they will do anything to keep the unions out. The sad reality is 
that the employer is likely to prevail in the overwhelming majority of cases. And we've seen that time and time and time again. But this time they won. This is a really big victory. And I want to go back over this, John Logan, because as you correctly state, workers didn't take off on a mom and pop store, even though these are small uh, branches of the store. So we're talking only 25 employees or something like that, depending on on which one is which. So um, that's deceptive. When you think about how big of a giant or behemoth Starbucks is, it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. Amazon, or as you pointed out to the others. So, and it's also international. It's not just in the United States. So it's really huge. And I want you to be able to go back and sort of uh, talk a little bit more about what the goals of the drive uh, mm-hmm. to win a union through an NLRB election, what that entails, and yeah. then after that, to win a contract by perhaps starting with what their yeah. grievances were. And I know that one thing that's happened during the pandemic and this you know, big quit and shortage of labor is that big pocket employers, Amazon, Target, and probably Starbucks, I don't know, have increased wages. Right. And they've done so while being incredibly anti-union. And yeah. so sort of saying, yeah. you don't need a union will be good to you. And right. Starbucks, of course, like Amazon's owners are supposedly thinking of themselves as kind of progressive and yeah. Yeah. and creating this new sort of model. And Starbucks touts that it'll do all sorts of other things that unions won't like give you a right. free university education. And maybe right. you could just go into that because yeah. that will lead into, let me just uh, sure. absolutely uh, say, both. Yeah. the kind of tactics that the Starbucks corporation used yeah. to yeah. discourage the un- the workers from voting to unionize. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. I-, I will start by just talking about the sort of character of the corporations themselves. I mean, as you said, you know, both the former CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, is probably the person who's you know most closely associated with the company, the former CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I mean, they're not your typical diehard Republican anti-union union busting, you know, Bezos owns the Washington Post. You know, Howard Schultz has been associated with Democrats for a long, long time. But when you look at the actual labor model, the business model and the, the labor practices within the company, you know, all of this talk about high starting wages, about, you know, socially progressive policies within the workplace, about, you know, various benefits, college tuition, you know, various things they might, uh, that's all very well. But really at the core, they have, I think, what I would say is quite a sort of dystopian and quite depressing a model of algorithmic management, low-wage labor, disposable workers, and no independent voice at the workplace. And, you know, obviously that's extremely important. So they think this is the future of work, that they have it figured out, that they can afford to offer, whether it's 15, 16, maybe some cases 17 bucks an hour starting pay. They can talk about certain benefits that in theory sound really good. However, you know, there are some things we have to say, but all of those things. One of the things, and this is true at Starbucks, it's also true of Amazon, the starting pay on the face of it is it's not bad at all, but you don't get to move up 
you know, you can be there for years and years and years, and you're not earning much more than you were when you started off. So the opportunities for progression, the opportunities for career advancement, the opportunities to earn a livable wage are very limited. And that's part of the reason that people leave in such high numbers. And the fact that they do leave in such high numbers means that many of the other benefits that these companies tout are actually often not available to them because they don't stick around long enough to to take advantage of the benefits. There have been many other things during the pandemic. You know, some of them were just so traditional, you know, what we would consider to be traditional union issues to do with health benefits or to do with you know, other sick pay, really important benefits, obviously, during a pandemic. But some of it was very much pandemic and COVID related. You know, there were concerns about safety practices within the stores. But just more than that, just the sort of concern about a lack of employee voice and, you know, a lack of, for want of a better way of putting it, respect and justice on the job. And so, you know, on the one hand, these are the kind of workers who would benefit enormously from unionization. I mean, we know this from the Bureau of Labor Statistics figures. If you compare workers in these types of food service jobs, you know, unionized workers versus non-union workers, the unionized workers do so much better. They do better in wages, but you know, wages is actually not the key to the difference. The real difference is in benefits and health benefits and pension benefits and those types of things. It's an absolutely enormous difference. But they also do better in terms of having an independent voice at work. You know, and as I say, I think, you know, with especially during the COVID pandemic, you know, what we've seen is a lot of agitation, a lot of organizing that's going around that I think the issues were always there. But, you know, they've really been heightened as a result of the COVID pandemic. So, I mean, what, what do you do during the NLRB process? Well, so let's talk about the small stores, right, just for a very short time. As you said, the stores themselves, they, they might have 15, 20, 25 workers. They're, they're not big stores. And this was one of the initial fights. The company hired Littler Mendelssohn, which is the largest management side labor and employment law firm in the country that has for decades specialized in so-called union avoidance activities keeping the corporations union free and one of the things that they do i mean they would say they're just sort of haggling with the union over the the proper composition of the bargaining unit but from a union perspective one of the things that they do is you know manipulate the bargaining unit who gets to vote who doesn't exactly. get to vote so that it's least likely to result in a yes vote and that often means packing the unit with you know people from the outside who weren't working there before but who are brought in to work there for the duration of the election period and, and who was the this- company it was this what we saw we at Amazon yeah. of course they packed the bargaining yeah. unit Beyond, enormously, enormously but how yeah. do they do that in small stores mm-hmm. without it being you know just obvious what's happening yeah well it, it was obvious <laughs> it's part <laughs> of the answer as you said they won one they lost one 
They they won the third vote, but you know the disputed ballots, all of which were disputed by the union, would be determinative. If all of those ballots were included in the count, at the moment they have not been counted. So the count that we have, I, I believe it was 15 to 9 in the, mm-hmm. the third store in favor of the union, but there's seven disputed ballots. If they're all included and they're all no votes, then the union will lose that store. But if they're not all included, if none of them are included, or you know, if half of them are not included, or if they're not all no votes, then the union will win. But that was the store that the union and the workers knew all along that management had been packing the store with these additional workers who weren't there on a regular basis, who weren't there before the campaign, because they were brought in for the purpose of voting no in the NLRB election. Now, the other thing is just, you know, briefly, I I know, you know, bargaining units is probably not the most exciting topic, but, you know, it's important. Starbucks, Littler Mendelssohn's lawyers were pushing very hard for a 20-store unit. They wanted all 20 stores in the Buffalo region to compose, you know, the bargaining units. And, of course, they knew that this would be far more difficult for the union to win a unit composed of 20 stores where they hadn't even been able to reach out to the workers in many of these other stores. But it was in many ways a ridiculous argument, you know, when we're determining bargaining units in the United States, by far the most accepted practice is to go by a workplace by workplace basis. So, which in this case, because of the way the stores are organized, would mean one store is one bargaining unit, you know. And so that's what happened. They filed um, petitions in three stores. They had to collect at least 30% of, of the signatures of all of the eligible voters. And practice unions usually go for significantly more than that, you know, 60, 70% of the, the bargaining unit on the expectation that during the course of the anti-union campaign, they might lose a few of those votes. Although in the first store where they won, it seemed that they lost very few votes probably. And maybe in the third store too, if all of the, the additional ones that they're disputing are actually excluded. So they petitioned for three stores to do those, first of all, but this will continue. I mean, that's not the end of it. You know, there's another three stores in Buffalo that they're ready to go. There's stores in Arizona, there's stores in other places. So let me ask you a question about that, John, because you've just sort of laid it out and made it more understandable. I mean, it's it's an amazing undertaking that these workers at the first three stores did. And I'm assuming that they also had some idea about how to build community support and solidarity for this. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because they they were using the SEIU affiliate Workers United, is there anything you know, that we know about that SEIU was doing in terms of support as well. And then on the other hand, I wonder if you can answer the question about why Buffalo? What is it about Buffalo that made, you know, this the place or the terrain for these first unionization uh, battles? Yeah. Well, so in in terms of SEIU Workers United, I mean, you know very well, of course, that SEIU for the past 10 years, maybe even longer than that, but, you know, it's had the fight for 15 
which has very successfully raised minimum wage for millions of Americans, you know, in big cities and states all across the country. But it was also aimed at winning a union, $15 plus a union, primarily in the fast food sector. And it wasn't just McDonald's, but McDonald's obviously was perhaps the main company that had been targeted. And McDonald's, of course, is slightly different from Starbucks because you know, it's mostly operated on a franchise model. There's a few of the stores are, are, are owned and run by McDonald's headquarters, but most of them are open, operated independently as uh, franchisees. That's not true in Starbucks. You know, these are Starbucks stores, all of them. But nonetheless, you know, that experience of organizing, you know, all of those different retail outlets. I think with McDonald's is in some ways you know, prepares you. And in fact, you know, even during the fight for 15, it wasn't uncommon for Starbucks workers to join in in a lot of the, the industrial actions, the walkouts that they've had over the years, even although they weren't being targeted. And once again, you know, just one other feature of note that Littler Mendelssohn wasn't the only anti-union law firm used by McDonald's, but it certainly was, you know, one of the main ones. So anyway, they've had experience with taking on this size of employer, this type of sort of structure, you know, this kind of business model. Buffalo, I mean, I've read about this. I'm certainly not an expert in it. But, you know, I think people who don't know Buffalo, which I would include myself probably in that description, would be surprised in terms of some of the political activism that's been going on in Buffalo over the past few years. And so it's a much cheaper place to live, obviously, than New York City or from or Boston or you know wherever. And it attracts a lot of young people, a lot of young people who are politically active in various different groups. And it has a very strong union tradition. I mean, you know, it, of course, it suffered a great deal of deindustrialization. So a lot of the unionized, industrial unionized jobs that used to be there, far more of a service economy these days. But you know, it's certainly not, you know, when you look at it in you know, greater detail, you think, yeah, you know, Buffalo seems like a perfectly good place, you know, to have this kind of campaign. And as you said, you know, between eight and 9,000 Starbucks retail outlets throughout the country. I mean, so they really are everywhere. So, you know, you're not just talking about New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago. I mean, you have got to organize Starbucks, you know, throughout the country. And now, as you said, you know, one of the other stores that apparently is ready to go um, in terms of filing for an NLRB election is in Arizona, which again, yeah, yeah, not somewhere. I mean, probably one of the most conservative cities in the, the country, you know, by reputation anyway. Um, Bernie Sanders came in and said that, you know, this this effort, this unionization is contagious. And mm-hmm. it clearly is because it's not just Starbucks. We're also seeing some independent coffee, yes. Baristas yeah. and other stores trying right. to sign on to this. Well, Absolutely. we I want to get into our, you know, the, our next area. But I guess the final question, and it's a big one, maybe you can just do it as uh, succinctly as possible. And that is. The next step after winning the union is trying to win a contract. Right. And and so, like, what kind of can you just in broad lines sort of explain what that entails? 
I mean, th- this is, you know, again, one of the, the worst aspects of U.S. labor law is that it allows management advised by these very expensive and very talented in many ways anti-union law firms. You know, they're experts uh, drawing, you know, uh, dragging out the bargaining process forever and ever and ever because they know that the longer this takes place, the more likely the workers are to become discouraged. There'll be higher rates of turnover within the store. The last thing they want is for negotiations to to be concluded relatively quickly and for the workers to get a good contract so that you can point. As you said, organizing is contagious, but it's really helpful. I mean, again, as as probably most people listening know, you know, organizing in the U.S., involves a high degree of risk for workers. I mean, I would say an unacceptable amount of risk because of the protections for the right to form a union are so weak. And so, you know, if you're asking people in other stores to take that risk, it really helps to have a successful model to point to. Now, we have that already in terms of the organizing victory. And and, and it's not even just Starbucks, but, you know, I think it's absolutely likely that there's going to be Starbucks workers all over the country and say, well, you know, if they can do that in Buffalo, you know, we can do it in Arizona or we can do it in Virginia or we can do it, you know, in Washington State, wherever it might be. But, you know, to have a unionized store that was able to successfully negotiate a good first contract with real concrete improvements in you know, working conditions and wages and benefits and just, you know, to give the workers a real independent voice over the issues that they cared about, that would be enormous. And But it also means that the company will be desperate to try and avoid that. And so, you know, this is a process that they shouldn't be able to, but they have become, as you say, and I, I'm not saying it's all the law firms, but, you know, they, they hire these particular law firms for a reason. Right. They have developed mm. a very high level of expertise in terms of frustrating the union at every opportunity. And in the past, some of them have openly told employers, you know, you, you haven't lost until you sign a contract. So, you know, you don't want to lose the election, which they did, but but you have a second chance and you haven't really lost until you actually sign the, the first agreement. And so, you know, Starbucks will be doing everything it possibly can in order to frustrate that process and for it to drag on for as long as possible. But what I will say, because this has been such a high profile campaign, and the same would be true at Amazon if we get a union victory at Amazon, the media's attention and political attention and everything else will be so focused on, you know, holding these companies to account and to make sure they don't get away with, you know, breaking the law, bending the law, frustrating the true purpose of the law. I mean, they've been getting away with it for years, but now, you know, the country's attention is more focused on what's happening. Great. So let's move John Logan on to the next one, because the Starbucks battle for unionization and contract in Buffalo are are not taking place in a vacuum, but in the context of an intensified class struggle. 
Yep. It's, if not necessarily yet what could be called a true strike wave, I think it's mm-hmm. not quite that, but we have no. seen a stepped up workers offensive. We saw yep. October as striketober. We yep. covered a lot of those right on this show, but emblematic of the situation is the much, much larger fight at the historic American manufacturing company Kellogg's. They mm-hmm. make all of the cereals that you grew mm-hmm. up uh, eating and maybe still do, who knows? But there are 1,400 workers that have been on strike since the beginning of October 2021. Right. And the issues are pretty, pretty like striking. Uh, but as in many places, um, they've been over the two tiered wage system, yeah. yeah. health care, yeah. retirement benefits, yeah. Yeah. COLA adjustments, but also. Just unbelievable mandatory overtime and working yeah, uh, sometimes yeah. 120 days without yeah. a break, all yeah. kinds of things. So there had been a, a pretty heroic strike going on yeah. there. And a few days ago, the union and the company uh, came to a tentative agreement, but the workers voted to reject it. So that's right. pretty historic, too. The consequences have already been huge in response The company promptly said it's going to replace the entire workforce Mm -hmm. with the permanent scabs or the work, those working as replacement workers. So the strike, you know, continues, but the stakes are suddenly very much higher. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most obviously for the union, which is the bakery, confection, tobacco workers and grain millers, international union. So what's your view, John Logan, of this upset in this ongoing battle? And you know, now that the company has taken this drastic move that would, in fact, not just scuttle the contract negotiations, but make the scabs permanent, what can we expect? Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, just to start off, just to step back a little bit, I think it's really important and really right exactly what you said, that if this Starbucks organizing were just happening in isolation, you think, well, it's a really great story. But maybe it will lead to something, maybe it won't. But it isn't. You know, it's happening at a time where an increasing number of workers all over the country are talking union and not just the usual suspects. You know, you've like, you know, online media workers, you've got tech workers, you've got museum workers, gallery workers. Even whiskey workers. Yeah, yeah, all (laughs) sorts, you know. So, I mean, again, the numbers, you know, individually are not always huge, but collectively there's clearly some kind of change that's been happening. And as you said, we've had a wave, I'm not calling a strike wave, but a wave of strikes, Um, (laughs) you know, and threatened strikes at Kaiser, at the University of California, at, you know, a lot of big employers at Harvard. Some um, victories too, and then we had the IATSE one. Wonderful victories at UC2 amongst the lecturers. They got a fabulous contract out of the threatened strike there. And, you know, Part of the, you know, the sort of enormous number of people quitting their jobs as well was also a form of protest. I mean, it's the kind of form of protest you get when you don't have any sort of like more collectivist type of action available to you. You know, you can't stay and improve the conditions, you know, but you leave, you know, like you said, stuff this job, you know, I'm going to get another one or So all of that's happening. As you said, I mean, again, if you were just to, to, to look at the Kellogg strike in isolation, you would think, oh, no, this is kind of reminiscent to a lot of the strikes that we saw in the 70s, 80s and 90s, 
where workers went out and, you know, they were either threatened with permanent replacements being brought in or they were actually permanently replaced. And, you know, most of those strikes ended badly for, for the unions and for the workers involved. And that has contributed massively to the, the huge decline we're seeing in strike levels in the United States. Now, we're talk, talking about this uh, uh, as a strike wave or some type of upsurge in the number of, of strikes, but it, you know, it has to be understood in the context of we're, we're, we're starting at very, very low levels, you know, in the past decades, the past two decades, in fact, you know, we, I mean, strikes were in like the three, four hundreds, you know, per large industrial stoppages, even in the early 70s, you know, in the, the late 40s, you know, they were sky, you know, the number was off the charts. And now we're typically down to like, you know, eight or 10 or 15, maybe in a big year, you know, of major work stoppages. And that includes lockouts as well as strikes. So the numbers. And we are talking, we should just say the private sector, because we saw spectacular teacher strikes in the public sector throughout 2018. But yes, go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the sort of sign that, you know, something was changing in 2018. And, but even if you look at the types of workers who have been going on and strike, you know, it's been disproportionately teachers, education workers, librarians, nurses, healthcare workers, etc. It hasn't been a lot of traditional industrial workers like you used to see, you know, we, we you know, anyone Auto, who's read any, yeah. yeah, Phelps Dodge, Caterpillar, like, you know, all of these big iconic strikes. But as I said, it was because, now, why, why did that happen? So, you know, most people, again, you know, probably might have some familiarity with, there's a 1937 Supreme Court case, McKay Radio, and it was actually the first time the Supreme Court came up and said, and it wasn't even the main point of the case, but it did sort of indicate uh, in the case that, yeah, it was lawful. You, you could not fire a worker for going out in an economic strike, but you could permanently replace them. <laughs> it's one of these things that there, it does make a difference in a law. distinction but, with know, the difference? I yeah, mean... well, you know, in terms of the worker, you know, they're still out of a job. So, but the thing was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we didn't have this sort of like huge wave of, you know, the use of permanent replacements and threatened use of permanent replacement, with the one exception of the American South. You know, when the CIO tried to operate the textile plants in the Carolinas during Operation Dixie in the 40s and 50s, this was a very, very common tactic, you know, that they were sort of threatened to, and they would, in fact, replace workers who went out on strikes. But, you know, in most of the rest of the country, where, you know, collective bargaining was far more entrenched, this didn't go on very much. And, you know, there's some dispute amongst historians. There's a very good labor historian at Georgetown, Joe McCartan, fabulous historian. He wrote a very good book about the Pacto strike, uh, the air traffic controller strike in 1981, where Ronald Reagan broke the union and threw the, the leaders of the union in jail and uh, replaced all of the workers. And 
you know, that book, which, you know, is a wonderful book, wonderful historian, but it sort of describes <laughs> Paco as a so-called Paco moment. You know, Paco changed everything because it was essentially giving the, the green light to employers who wanted to take a hard line in terms of breaking strikes. If the federal government says it's okay to do this, if they can play hardball, you know, bring in permanent re- replacements, then it's okay for you to do it too. The, the reality is actually a little bit more complicated because, and I mean, I've read a lot about this, but I've published a bunch on it too. But, you know, so it really, the big change really happened in the 1970s. You know, if you look, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out a publication called Employers Bargaining Objectives Every Year. And this was one of the questions that they used to always include was, you know, if you have faced industrial action or if you were to face industrial action, would you use permanent replacements? Would you threaten to use permanent replacements? And the numbers that said they would either use them or threaten to use them just went up astronomically in the 1970s. And I mean, there are labor history books, very good ones that talk about the 70s as this pivotal decade. You know, that was really when the business roundtable and some of the most conservative reactionary members of the corporate community sat down and said, you know, we can't tolerate these high labor prices anymore. And, you know, Doug Fraser of the UAW famously called it, you know, engaging in a one-sided class war. You know, the the capitalist side, the employer side was engaging in war against unions and workers, but they weren't fighting back. So this phenomenon of permanent replacements really sort of dates back. I mean, you know, it dates back to the 30s and it was used in the South, but it really dates back to the 70s, 80s, 90s and contributed massively to the decline of strikes. Now, Having published three or four articles, you know, when I started graduate school, the AFL-CIO's legislative priority was trying to get legislation banning permanent replacement workers. They tried it during the first Bush, you know, Bush one, and then they tried it during Clinton administration. You know, same old story, just couldn't get it through the Senate, you know, and so it died. And, you know, know, I just started graduate school. I wrote a few papers about that, published them. I thought, you know, by the time I started my first job, you know, London School of Economics in 2000, I thought this had completely disappeared as a live issue. You know, I thought, well, it was one of these things that used to be a really good big deal. It used to be really important. And it's definitely important in terms of understanding the the huge decline in industrial action in the United States. But we're not going to see a surge of permanent replacements and high-profile strikes. But here we are. But especially in this context, John Logan, that you've just laid out, of course, this was part of the frontal attack on unions, and it was successful. But we're talking about a new generation. And as John Dunzinger said, it's union generation. And it's public support for union struggles, for unionization. And here we have also... At Kellogg, the workers themselves expressing doubt that yeah. Kellogg could find 1,400 workers because given the conditions that yeah, they're the imposing market. on these yeah. workers and the big quit, yeah. how many workers would work? You yeah. know, mandatory overtime, 80 hours yeah. a week, sometimes 120 days without a break. You'd have yeah. to be crazy how much yeah. would they possibly yeah. pay. No, that's super that. important. So I, 
And now yeah. let me just continue because yeah, yeah. The, the offer to these workers who are going to be replaced has been still a two, two-tier system, still mm-hmm. these bad hours. So it looks like the company lives in a different era or they're just, you know, planting a big stake in the ground and saying here and no further. So yeah. what's your take on on that and what it means yeah. for the labor movement yeah, yeah. that they've decided to do this? Right. Well, you're right. It is super interesting. You know, I was talking to a Bloomberg journalist who's writing about this strike the other day. And, you know, she said that she was amazed at the really hard hardball tactics that Kellogg's has been using kind of throughout. I mean, as you said, we thought that we had a settlement maybe a couple of days ago. Now we don't. But they had threatened replacements before that too, you know, and despite Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, these replacements were a very real possibility, as you said, the workers voted on the contract and now they're saying, we're going ahead. We're going to use the replace. But like you said, this is not 1980. This is not 1990 even. The atmosphere is different. And I think there's a very real possibility that Kellogg's has overplayed its hand and could face a very significant backlash, you know, if it tries to go ahead with this. Also, Columbia University has has, uh, threatened, it hasn't done it yet, but is threatened to bring in replacement workers for for striking graduate students, employees. And I believe today, and I'm sorry, I should have looked at it. I've just been rushing around all day talking about Starbucks. I was told that Joe Biden made a statement. Yes, I was going to bring that in. Let me just tell the listeners about that. But first, just one technical question. Okay. And that is, if they bring in, if they succeed in firing them and then bringing you know, these new workers, replacement workers in, do they join a unionized workforce or does that effectively kill the union? Do you know, how does that, how does that work? It would affect, eventually effectively kill the union, not right away. But, you know, if you have an entirely new workforce that, Obviously, these replacements are not likely to be sympathetic to the union for the most part. I mean, there have been examples of replacement workers then unionizing, you know, and becoming. But it, it, of course, it's not the norm. Then, you know, a certain duration of time would have to pass and then they could decertify the union. You know, but the union would be destroyed. I mean, I mean, it wouldn't. It in, legally, it would still exist, but with this entirely new workforce, it would effectively already be destroyed. Um, Let me just come in and tell you just before you finish yeah. answering, because I know time is a little short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Biden made an extraordinary statement today, and it's released, and it's uh, it's an immediate press release statement, yeah. and and he says that collective bargaining is an essential tool to protect the rights of workers. It should be free from threats of intimidation. And he's said he's deeply troubled by any report of Mm -hmm. Kellogg's going forward to replace the striking workers and says that this is an essential attack on the union and and on their livelihood and their job. He said he absolutely and has for a long time been opposed to this ability to mm-hmm. uh, permanently replace strikers. Which would be prohibited by the PRO Act if we ever yes. were able to get the well, PRO Act. We need to say that. And he says, yeah. then he goes on to support unions and what they've done and yeah. collective bargaining. And he urges finally the unions and the employers to come together and, yeah. and try to resolve this. Well, that that part is, you know, neither here nor there, but it's a pretty historic yeah. statement. And after yeah. 
It, it's a terrific statement. And the same was true during the Amazon dispute as well. You know, yeah. if that, that statement he made on February 28th, or was it 29th? Was it a leap year? I don't remember. We um, were yeah, talking about it then. Yeah, was actually a very radical statement. I mean, if you want, you know, and it's even more powerful if you watch the video, you know, that it was put on Twitter or video. And what he was saying basically was that employers really have no business getting involved in the union organizing process. And here too, as you said, I mean, this is a president who's prepared to take positions, strong positions on individual important labor disputes and issues. This is very rare. You know, I mean, it was very difficult to get Clinton or Obama or any of, you know, Clinton made some kind of helpful comments during the UPS strike, but they were more neutral. But the fact that they were neutral was considered to be a great victory for the union. Yeah. So, but, 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 you know, I think, Again, I think it puts the pressure on Kellogg. You can say it's just words, but at the moment, the bully pulpit of the presidency is perhaps the most important tool that Biden has at his disposal. You know, there's so many things he wants to do that he's being frustrated, but you know, he can do this and it's wonderful that he is getting out and doing it, you know. And you know, one other thing I would say, which is a, a, a sort of minor, I mean, it's not minor, but you know, we were talking earlier about Starbucks and about the the union of avoidance law firms, Littler Mendelssohn at the US. And then when we talked about Amazon previously, we talked about all of the different consultants that they use to fight against the union. There are actually also an entire industry of firms that provide replacement labor and and security for replacement labor. So in a way, you know, these firms have been around since the 19th century. You know, the Pinkertons kind of did this in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, 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 but again, you know, it's really a phenomenon. This type of firm, as they currently operate, really exploded in the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, when we had all of these high profile strikes in which replacement workers were used and still to this day and they're not well known you know most people of course would why would they know that they, these firms exist but they do and they specialize in particular industries often for like nurses or healthcare or logistics truck drivers forklift truck drivers whatever you know whatever your industry you can provide you know but like you said they will have problems getting them because of everything that's going on right now it will not be easy and and, and I, I think th- that the backlash could be real well you said that it's an overreach and I know you have another interview to go to so final question what do you think the labor movement as a whole should do to both support the Starbucks but especially now to prevent Kellogg from or, or to show the kind of force that would prevent Kellogg from moving ahead and yeah. in the workforce. Well, so, I mean, the piece in the conversation, and you know, we talked about this before with Amazon, I mean, what I think is really significant in Starbucks too, is not just, it is significant that they won at Starbucks, but in a way, it's even more significant that they got all of this fabulous media coverage for it, you know? I mean, people are tuned into these issues in the United States like they never have been in decades. I mean, you know, of course, it depends on how widely they're read, 
But, you know, all every big media outlet, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, Reuters, AP, you know, Lauren Gurley's wonderful reporting advice, they all had these great, great stories on Starbucks. You know, people really are paying attention to the issue of labor rights in a way that has not been true for decades. And always one of the greatest problems in this country was the fact that we didn't have a national debate around these issues. And we didn't have a consensus that the problem was that the system is far too out of whack in favor of major corporations and against ordinary workers. And that employers are, you know, big employers like Amazon, Starbucks, Kellogg's, are just uh, getting away with murder in terms of employing these hardball anti-union tactics that they wouldn't be able to do in most other rich democracies. You know, let's not kid ourselves here. The United States is very much an exception when it comes to you know, failing to protect the right properly, adequately protect the right to choose a union, failing to adequately protect the right to go out and strike. The right to strike, as everyone knows, is a really fundamental right. I mean, in labor terms, you know, you, you really don't, you know, apart from like, you know, the, the freedom of association, you know, the ability to get together to form unions, you know, the right to strike is about as basic as, as it comes. And the ILO has repeatedly criticized the United States government for allowing this practice of permanent replacement of economic strength. It's a ridiculous term, I mean, but this is how it's talked about. You know, you can't be fired, but you can be permanently replaced. I mean, you still have a right of recall if by some magic, you know, other jobs open up some later time, you know, when all of the strikers have already gone off and gotten jobs elsewhere because, you know, they're not going to get their original jobs back. But, you know, it it really does, you know, I, I mean, I think Biden might even have said today that it represents an existential threat to the labor movement and to unions and to, you know, everything that unions have achieved. And I think that is correct. And I think if you focus the attention on them and the fact that they're, you know, engaging in these very brutal anti-union, anti-worker practices, we have a far more receptive public than we've ever had, you know, I think in the past half century. And we have all of these wonderful labor journalists, you know, Rolling Stone had a terrific story on the Kellogg strike. But, you know, I mean, the people that we talk about, like, you know, Lauren Gurley or Kim Kelly or, you know, Steve Greenham, of course, all kinds of people, you know, they're, they're just fantastic. I mean, the labor beat at, in the media has been reinvigorated and, you know, it, it works both ways. I mean, it's been reinvigorated by the, the, the activism and the organizing and, you know, everything else. But it has helped that process, you know, it's helped, um, you know, incredibly. Okay, John Logan, thank you so much for all of that. I know you have another interview to go to and just keep talking up about these labor struggles. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And John is Professor and Chair of Labor and Employment Studies at uh, San Francisco State University. 
His latest piece uh, appears Friday in the conversation, and it's called Union Battles at Amazon and Starbucks are Hot News, which can only be good for the labor movement. A perfect way, you know, to encapsulate what's going on. Thanks so much, John. Okay. Thanks, Susan. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye.